to be honest, I'm kind of like making things up as I go along and taking my experience that I have of building communities and figuring out how to build a community in the current world, I guess. Everybody wants to belong somewhere and even more so these days is like everybody's seeking something. You know, people are people and the majority of the time just being good to them helps people belong and giving them opportunities. It's not magic. It's not rocket science. Hello and welcome to Developer Love, the podcast for people who build developer communities. We'll hear from people working to win the hearts and minds of developers, including founders, execs, and the top minds in developer relations, dev marketing, and community management. I'm Patrick Woods, the CEO of Orbit, the community experience platform. Developer Love is brought to you by Heavybit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Today, we're speaking with Rosie Sherry. Rosie is the community manager for Indie Hackers. She's also the founder of Ministry of Testing and the creator of the online community for community builders called Rosie Land. All right, Rosie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm very excited to have this conversation. So as we dive in, would you mind just sharing a little bit about who you are and what you're working on? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. So I'm Rosie Sherry. I've been in tech about 20 years now. I started around the year 2000 as a software tester. I was about 20 at the time. I kind of blagged my way through tech for a few years. Along the way, I kind of discovered communities, and that's kind of like what I focus on at the moment. And as a software tester, I ended up bootstrapping a business called Ministry of Testing, which was a community for software testers. And that did all right as a kind of bootstrap business. It's still around. I still like co-own it, and it's still going strong. But a couple of years ago, I stepped back from that um, just for kind of a change of scene. And um, more recently, I've been leading the community at Indie Hackers, which has been great, to be honest. And again, I guess as an indie hacker myself, I've kind of been diving into my own side projects as well. Awesome. Would love to hear about any of the side projects you're working on. Uh, yeah, mostly, obviously, because I'm into communities, it's kind of like around communities. But yeah, to be honest, I'm kind of like making things up as I go along and taking my experience that I have of building communities and taking where the world is now and figuring out how to build a community in the current world, I guess. And with COVID as well, that's like, you know, been interesting, I think. But mostly, yeah, I'm focused on something called Rosyland, which just a bit over a year ago is just meant to be a blog. It was my kind of commitment to dive into the community world because I'd spent like many years building a community and I kept meaning to kind of participate in the world of community for community builders, but never found or justified the time to do it. So this was kind of my way of having accountability if I had a blog and a newsletter, then I would have to show up and, and write stuff or see what other people are writing about or follow people on Twitter and see who's who kind of thing. So that was a year ago. Um, I came up with the domain Rosyland kind of after me. It was actually an indie hack who recommended the domain name, which was kind of cool because um, I'd always kind of referenced the space in my head as Rosyland <laughs> and... Uh, Indie Hacker noted that and he, he had this fascination with domain names ending with land <laughs> and he pointed out that it was available and that I should grab it. 
so I did. So yeah, I mean, at the moment, Rosie Land is kind of a newsletter. Uh, it's on Substack, and combined with that, I've I've been building up like a knowledge base, kind of a research hub, which is based on Notion. So it's all kind of like no code kind of stuff. But the more I've been doing it, the more I've been thinking about well, actually, Substack doesn't quite work for me so I'm in the process of trying to turn it into a community basically hmm. so Substack it's it's free and paid so I've got about 110 112 subscribers at the moment paid subscribers and just slowly in the background I've been building up a tool to migrate those subscribers well I can't migrate them I have to tell them to cancel it but the whole point is that I'll be moving off of Substack I guess to kind of build a community slowly um, custom built, I guess. Yeah, I'd love to hear the, um, your, your journey from mailing list to knowledge base to sort of whatever platform you're moving to. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution and sort of what worked at each phase and what, what you were looking for as you transition to each sort of next inflection point? Yeah, I guess like the first phase is like me trying to figure out, is this something I want to do? So like the newsletters, like when I started it, I started doing a weekly curated newsletter, which was essentially just like grabbing links of what people were talking about in the community world and trying to find things that were interesting. And, you know, for me, it's like I've been doing this long enough that I don't really care if I have followers or subscribers to begin with, because I know it's like more about the habit of showing up and and doing the work. So literally for the first six months, you know, I didn't really promote it much at all. I still don't, to be honest, but... um, I had 100 subscribers within the first six months, which wasn't a lot, but in those months I had kind of built that habit of showing up every week and kind of creating this newsletter. I never missed a day apart from like, you know, I guess during the Christmas holidays I took a couple of weeks off because, you know, who's going to read during those times? But the habit I know in these things is so important is that if you can't have the habit, then what's the point? In, In addition to the habit, it's also kind of me trying to figure out whether this was something that I wanted to do as well. So by not promoting it, it's like less pressure on me, you know, if I chose to continue doing it or not. Um, I wouldn't feel so bad or so guilty if I, like, quit, you know, stuff like that. But, yeah, so, like, after six months of doing it, I was kind of happy enough within myself that it was something I wanted to continue. And then, like, or at least for me, after I do something for a certain amount of time, I kind of, like, want to... You know, I start to think about, okay, what's next? I've got the hang of this. What else can I do to make it better or to add on to it? And I was using Substack at the time and I was looking at Ghost as well as like a platform to write. And I had wanted to write about community, but I had never justified the time to do it. And then like COVID happened and with family and kids and COVID and everything, it's like there's even less time available to kind of try to think about these things, let alone write stuff. So I was basically trying to think of a way of making myself accountable to show up every week to write something. And I kind of decided, well, the best way to do that is just to switch on payments for Substack and charge some money. So that's what I did. (laughs) And that was like four months ago or something. And so basically every week I've been showing up writing two newsletters, the curation one and then an article. And then alongside that, I have this kind of notion knowledge base that I've been building up as well which helps me with my research and it helps me with my writing as well so it's all kind of I guess like stacking the bricks yeah <laughs> I'm not sure if I would recommend it to be honest it's been it's been hard mm. and 
I still write week to week. I try to plan ahead, but life at the moment just doesn't allow me to do that. But at the same time, I'm like really proud that I've shown up every week and written an article that I'm mostly happy with. I think, you know, a lot of them could be better if I had more time, but, you know, I've got like a good bunch of articles there that I've never done before. I've never written so consistently. So, you know, I'm quite happy about that. Yeah, I would say as a happy subscriber, I learn a lot from every article. We talk about it internally at Orbit. It's always good food for thought. So I know it's a lot of work, but uh, <laughs> we're enjoying it. <laughs> Thank you. So you said before that the best thing about building communities is helping people realize they belong. Yeah. And I'm curious, what do you think are some tactical ways that community builders can help foster that feeling? Uh, yeah. I think, to be honest, it's just like, I've always like just listened and researched, and I've always enjoyed doing that. So, like, when I started ministry or testing, I did my research before, like, starting a community, and I knew what was out there. So, when I came to start it, I kind of, I knew a few people, but I also knew what I was talking about to a certain extent. I wouldn't say that I was, like, a, an expert tester, but I had taken the time to consider the ecosystem. And, you know, I've done the same with indie hackers, it's like when you join a community or you're getting to know communities, it's just like really important to not jump in and think that you know everything. You know, it's just like taking the time to study the ecosystem and get to know your people and to understand what they're talking about. And then as you do that, to me, it's like everything comes naturally once you know that because you know you're not going to put a foot wrong. You know you're not going to say the wrong thing. You know you're going to you kind of know the history of certain people. You know the language to use, you know the language not to use. You know the debates that are always going on or not going on, or you know trigger points. And just kind of using that knowledge to your advantage to kind of work with people and figure out what it is they need, you know, is key. And then alongside that, it's like considering that everybody wants to belong somewhere. And even more so these days, is like everybody's seeking something. And if you have that at the top of your mind all the time, then every person you look at, you can search for something. You know, I call it searching for the spark. It's like something that they need, something that they're good at, something that they just need to hear, an opportunity that no one else will give them because it's hard to get opportunities. But, you know, in communities, sometimes you can do that, you know, and it's just like, you know, people are people. And the majority of the time, just being good to them helps people belong and giving them opportunities um it's what worked for me it's not magic it's not rocket science it's just like taking the time and i think unfortunately in the world today is like people don't like taking the time but i believe in just like taking the time to to be with your people yeah it seems like there's not a substitute for that type of listening and credibility building yeah and people say it doesn't scale, but I believe it does. I believe everything scales. You know, it's just like racism scales, right? Because if you grow up with racist people, you, you, that's going to rub off of you and you're likely to be, you know, racist yourself. Whereas if you grow up like in a supportive environment, in the kind of environment, that's what ends up spreading more, generally speaking. So it's like, you know, I believe in just like focusing on, on behaviors that I want to see to help people belong and to help them duplicate that behavior so that it spreads and it spreads naturally through humans it's not email marketing it's spreading it's not the data it's not seo it's just like you can spread human behavior and it's probably in my opinion one of the most effective ways and sustainable ways to 
grow something. One of the things we think about and talk about at Orbit is empathy at scale. And it's similar to what you're describing here and the fact that it scales through the sort of replication of behavior and norms, uh, less so than through like scaling up an email program. I think that's a really apt, apt comparison. Yeah. And we see this a lot at Indie Hackers. I say a lot of people come to Indie Hackers and they, they feel it. They feel the kindness and the generosity of most of the people there. And it's not like we've gone to every single one of those people and given them this recipe of generosity. It's just something that has naturally replicated from, you know, how it started from Cortland and I guess the discussions he originally instigated and like the design that he's built into it has helped as well. But that's all started from one person, which was Cortland. And if you look at the size of indie hackers now, you know, how is that not scaling? Thinking tactically, you know, you mentioned this idea of searching for the spark, which I think is beautiful. What's going through your mind, if you could sort of introspect a little bit when you're having a conversation with someone, how do you search for the spark sort of very tactically? What are some questions you're asking yourself or sort of behaviors you're looking for as you're going through that process? Yeah, quite often I look to see whether someone really wants something or whether they're just in it for kind of more selfish reasons. So... To find a spark, I think you have to look for people who hang around a bit more often. You kind of see them popping up or reappearing occasionally. It's, it's hard because I think everyone is so different, right? So, you know, I guess like going with examples, like with Ministry of Testing, um, I use this example quite a lot because it's a bit of a special one to me. But part of our like culture was to support people whenever we could. So quite often we would give away scholarships and people would apply for a scholarship and you'd get submissions. And <laughs> a lot of the submissions would be really lame with no soul to it, no heart, no true, mm-hmm. like, oh, I'd really appreciate this. But then sometimes, you know, something stands out and there was this one that stood out from someone called Emma. I mean, we're still like good friends today, but she just like submitted this like crazy submission, you know, and she like used like terrible like Photoshop skills with her image on it and the logo and just like put stuff together, you know. And then she like explained like her story and how much it would mean to her to like get this scholarship to come to the events and what conference we were doing. So you know, it's like sometimes it's like I guess like things take you by surprise, which was like this instant and. She was basically looking for a break into the world of software testing. She was like 30 years old or something at the time. She'd worked in a minimum wage job her whole life in like a factory type place. And she just wanted an opportunity to break into the testing world. And I was like, well, how can I not give that to her? And then it became a mission to get her, not only to get the scholarship, but to get a job by the end of the conference. And she did. And the whole community like got around her and they, you know, they were in- introducing her to everyone. And th- there wasn't anyone who didn't know that she was looking for a job. And she had a couple of interviews at the conference and she had a job at the end of it. And I thought that was a- amazing. Um, other sparks could be um, like, again, with Ministry of Testing, we have hosts who have done the events, like host gotten up on stage to host events. And that was a job that I never wanted to do. So I was always looking out for characters or people who would be good at that job. And there's one guy, Vernon, who, at least until COVID happened, uh, was always presenting at the conferences. And he, he just like had such a natural way with his style. 
And now he just, he's just like such a dude, <laughs> such a cool, <laughs> fresh dude. And that, that, I think it wasn't only that it was him that had like the spark within him, but it was also what I felt aligned well with the community, what the community needed, because for Ministry of Testing, my whole mission was to make it like more cool, more fun, because the whole industry was really very corporate before I started it. So everything I did had to have this like fresh, fresh feel to it. And this guy Vernon had and still has the vibe. So, it's, you know, it's a bit of kind of looking for talents or desires within people and also aligning it with what your community needs. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. So we have a lot of early stage software company founders here in the audience for Developer Love. Uh, I'm curious, what tactical advice would you give them as they're getting their own communities off the ground? Yeah, so um, I have the saying of studying your people. Mm. So this is what I kind of did with Rosyland as an example. And, you know, when I think about it, Cortland did it with Indie Hackers and I did it with Ministry of Testing as well. It's like before you start anything, you should do research about the space that you're heading into. When I say it kind of feels like common sense, is that obviously, yes, you need to do research before you start something, but it's kind of surprising how many people don't do it. So as an example, for Rosyland, I researched all the blogs that were out there and I followed them. I picked up all the newsletters and I, you know, I subscribed to them. I looked for anyone who was kind of popular in the community world and I would follow them on Twitter or blogs. I researched what communities were out there for community builders. I paid attention to all the discussions that were going on. And it's actually quite surprising how, I guess, not little time, but like within six months, I kind of felt like I knew everything that was going on. It's not, you know, I don't think the community world is the biggest industry out there. So, you know, it's like, it would be much harder, I think, in like the generic developer ecosystem or... You know, even, uh, you know, if you go into specific languages, it might be even harder. But I, I felt like within six months of doing that, I had a good idea of everything that was out there. And by doing that, not only do you get a feel for things, but if you kind of take like a proactive approach to doing this. So for me, I started this like notion knowledge base as part of it. So, I'd, you know, I started collecting tools. I started collecting podcasts everything I could, I just like, started taking notes and I was thinking, well, to keep me accountable, I might as well make it something that other people can kind of use, which has ended up being the notion knowledge base that I share. But that also kept me accountable to making sure that I was always looking for like stuff that was going on. But the more you look, basically, the more you have a feel for what the industry is like. And as a bootstrapper, indie hacker, business person, it's like, you shouldn't start a business if you don't know the industry that you're entering. You know, simple things to say, if there's already like a slack or two in your industry, is like, should you start another one or should you think of something else? You know, if you're going to start a podcast, you should know the pod, what other podcasts are out there so that you can understand what people, not only what people are talking about, but if you do start a podcast, it's like, how can you be different? How can you make sure that you're not regurgitating like what everybody else is saying? So, Basically, it's like, you know, once you get to know your people, to me, it's almost like the answers come to you. It's like you start to see the gaps. You start to see, like, 
how you can do things and how you can stand out. But you can't do that without taking the time to, to do the research. And that, that's like the biggest, you know, tactic that I can give to anyone. And it's not specifically community building, but, you know, that's the foundation of it. And then you can use that knowledge to your advantage. So it's like, what, you know, once you have that, and then once you make a decision on what action you're going to take, you know where to reach out and the people will hopefully already know you to some extent. And it just makes everything so much easier because it's like you're not this kind of stranger coming out of nowhere saying, hey, look at me, look how cool I am, and, or look at you know, this. No one's going to pay attention to you because they're like, you know, who is this person? <laughs> so I'm curious, what do you think you believe about community building that no one else believes? I'm not sure if no one else believes this, but... <laughs> I think communities can be really strong businesses whilst also giving back to the people. I don't think a lot of people do this well. I've not heard many people do this well. And I think there's opportunity to create better communities by working together rather than like what it is these days is that someone is a founder of a community or a company runs a community and they own it and the company's always going to own it. They might work with people and try to compensate them in some ways, but I believe it's very, very unbalanced, especially in the startup world, um, in the VC world. There's a lot of talk in the VC world at the moment. There's like, you know, everybody's talking about community and it feels like everybody wants to capitalize on it. They, you know, almost like jumping on it like hawks. And I don't like that. And I think there should be a different model. And I kind of want to see a model where, yes, someone owns it, but there's like more collaboration, like real collaboration between the community members. I tried in ways to do this at Ministry of Testing, but it was, uh, I don't think it was quite the right community to do that. But, like, for example, we did conferences and we expanded the conferences and the way I expanded them was by doing profit shares with people who wanted to expand them to different locations. And I don't think many people have actually done that, but it worked quite well for some of them, not all of them, but, you know, it was a way of growth and it was a way of me saying, look, if you want to do something, do it and, you know, we'll work together and see how it goes. And if we do well, you know, take half the profit, you know. I don't care. It's not that I don't care. It's that I'm happy to share the the fruits of our labor because community, it wasn't about me. Community is about the people. Yet when it comes to money and communities that run these days, it's all about the founder. It's all about, you know, the person at the top, you know, reaping in the money and, you know, sometimes paying people. But at the end of the day, it's the founder who, who benefits the most. So, for me, basically, I guess a long story cut short is that I would love to see more communities collaborate, like truly collaborate, like not necessarily ownership. I think ownership is very complicated, especially with people living in different countries. Co-founding anything is like getting married and it's just like, uh, it's, it's full of nightmares. So, you know, for me, it's that I'd love to see more like real collaborations of people, you know, building either communities or projects, whatever it is, but, you know, agreeing up front, saying, look, this is what we're building. 
let's share the profit. How can we do this and share the profit? So, yeah, I'd love to hear more people, stories of more people doing that. I'm actually trying to do this with Rosyland at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that works out. But with Rosyland, I've teamed up with four other people and I've agreed to share the profit of what we make. Uh, and that's once we move over to a new platform as well. So we'll be moving over to a new platform. And then from that point onwards, is there any money that we make is shared as like a percentage that we've, we've agreed. And it's pretty amazing, actually. It's been a few weeks we've been collaborating, like sharing ideas and what to do. Uh, and I'm kind of excited about it. I love what's coming up. And just the whole idea of like working with people is, is nice. And they're not employees. I've had employees in the past and I don't want that again as like a model. I'm, I just like, <laughs> I don't want to employ people. But the idea of like working in collaboration with people and sharing their rewards, I think is, is amazing. And what I'm trying with Rosyland could fall flat on its face, but I hope that if it works, it could be, you know, just an example to the world of how you can make communities and, you know, make it work for everybody who helps out. Mm. So you obviously have a lot of perspective on the arc of community as a concept over the past many years. You know, I'm curious from your perspective, how has community building changed in 2020? So I, I think I've long been like a bit of a contrarian thinker, a bit of a refuser to do certain things. As an example, I've got uh, five kids. We unschool our kids, so we homeschool with no curriculum. So it's kind of, I would call it child-led. It's not let your kids do what they want. It's like, you know, working with your kids with who they are and figuring out what's best for them. A lot of people don't quite understand that. And like COVID happens and yes, it adds extra stress onto me or us as a family, but actually apart from like nursery for our youngest kid, life has not changed a lot, right? So we're kind of used to being around each other all the time. We're used to working around, you know, everybody's needs, juggling things. And like when, when COVID hit, it's like, you know, all these people freaking out. And trying to manage and it's it's interesting because you know I, I just look on that and I think oh you know I feel calm at the moment about the situation despite you know the obvious negatives of COVID but I guess from that aspect it's interesting but anyways um you know I take that and, and then I think about communities and I think like with COVID like everything's changed and I think oh this is exciting we can like we have an opportunity to change things because there's like no excuses now all of a sudden everyone's working from home and there's been years and years of companies refusing to allow people to work from home and now all of a sudden everyone is and we realize that they can it's not that we have to but like I just think it's pretty amazing that we can adapt so it's like how can we we adapt that to the world of communities and, and how how can we realize that actually we can do a lot more with the tech that we were never doing. There's so much more we could have been doing all these years and we've not done it. So, yeah, I guess I guess from that perspective, I think it's exciting. But I think at the same time, the technology might be trying to move too fast and the human aspect hasn't quite caught up or they haven't quite managed to 
match the human needs with the tech. But I think it's pretty exciting that people have like opened their eyes to the fact that we can do more online and we can create more and we can create better tools. So like the creativity of human the human race is I hope you know, I hope I hope it will create some new norms because I just think the whole world is totally inefficient and totally <laughs> the things people do is say, like, you know, so much needs to be gotten rid of. And I guess that's what like I'm excited about. It's like what can we get rid of and what can we keep to make our world a better place? Hmm. Kind of cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> so in twenty twenty more and more companies and communities are moving online, but it seems like the the technology hasn't quite caught up with the human needs of the new realities of online community. And I'm interested in your perspective on what, what do you wish the technology would do or provide to help facilitate better or more meaningful connections online? Oh, um, I guess I basically wish that big companies wouldn't own so much of things like Facebook I don't know the answer to it, basically, mm. but I, I wish for you know a world that doesn't have Facebook that dominates, you know, or Amazon that dominates, because I, I think the world is not better off with them. I think when I look at my local community, it's like on you know like my local parent uh, family community. There's like a mums and dads group, for example, for the very local area that I live in and it's on Facebook that's depressing that it's, it's on Facebook mm. but then I think you know I think like why why does Facebook and Google have to own everything in relation to that and and the people like lose control of things they don't you know it's like so many people don't know how to make their own websites they don't know how to connect people they, they get you know they get stuck so quickly and, and it's kind of crazy that we can't connect more easily in the world, you know, with our neighbours or... It's basically, it's like, why don't we have local communities that serve each other better that aren't owned by big corporations? Why aren't people empowered to set up their own? I think there's a few examples out there, like, I can't remember the name of it. It's, uh, but it was basically an independent-run community that's closed off, but, it's you know, it really serves the local communities. And... I wish there was more tech to enable people to do that. Or, you know, it's not even about the tech. It's about giving people sustainable options, business options to feel like they can afford to run things like this, that there's ways to make money from it, you know. And because I, I think there's no one better to serve local communities and the people that live in them. And, it should, you know, it shouldn't be the big tech that kind of control it. Hmm. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, could you talk a little bit about the Indie Women Slack group and how that's going? So Indie Women, it's, I'm a woman in tech and I'm a woman in business. And in both instances, there's lack of women. And when I started at Indie Hackers, the biggest thing that I was worried about was leading a community as, as a woman. I was like, what's, what's going to happen? Am I going to get trolled? Am I going to get harassed? So I've always had it in the back of my mind to do something more for Indie Women, but it took me about 18 months to actually start doing stuff and like having the confidence to do things properly. But basically, it's like, you know, women, I believe, need extra support or a separate space 
to hang out. Quite often they don't feel comfortable participating in the main forum. So with Indie Hackers, I, I kind of have a lot of flexibility in what I choose to do. And Indie Hackers is huge and it's just like, it's overwhelming um, to, you know, participate in quite a lot. So I believe in the idea of small groups and connecting and making deeper connections. And like, I believe that once in this instance, indie women have a few strong connections with, with each other, then they can be stronger and more confident to um, step up. And that's the idea behind Indie Women. And hopefully it's just the start of lots of smaller groups that I can like lay the seeds for. And the Slack started because we just started doing meetups and then they said that they wanted a Slack group and I didn't even start it. It was someone else who was helping um, run a, a meetup and they just started it. So I was like, okay, I can't say no to this. Uh, let's let's start a, a Slack. That's the general idea behind it. But it's basically, it's a different way to engage. Obviously, like Slack is very different. It's more about the conversation. Uh, it's more instant. But it also just gives me a chance to see all the indie women that are there and reach out to them and for them to share what they're working on. And then for me, it's like I can then communicate things that we're doing and kind of get feedback. And off the back of that, I've started like accountability meetups. So we're doing that every two weeks. And we're doing an indie woman party like once a month, like the first Thursday of every month. We've decided to do that. And it's going well. We've got like 30 people signed up to the party. So that, that should be fun. But basically, I want more indie women running businesses because I think the world needs more women to kind of rule the world. <laughs> Basically, I think women have... I often struggle to explain it, but when you're surrounded by men, it's really hard to get your voice seen. So by having these smaller environments and, again, like looking for the sparks, looking for the opportunities, uh, trying to understand what people are working on. And there's actually quite... You know, a few interesting tools that indie hacker women are working on that I was never aware of until I started the Slack. So again, it's like studying your people. I, um, I'm going like deeper in to uh, studying indie women to see how I can help them. And then I'm going to be looking for more opportunities to support them and also to integrate them into the indie hacker community more and to help them grow. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, this is a very tactical question, but I'm curious what happens at a, an indie women party online? What's, what tool do you use? What's the structure? What's the format look like for something like that? Yeah, it's the first party we were doing, but we've done a couple of, in the past, which is basically the same thing, but it's using icebreaker.video, which was quite fun. So we've done a couple of those with like 10 or 15 people um, and you can like play music like in between sessions and then kind of match people up for like five to 10 minutes to meet. So that's the basis of it, really. Icebreaker is quite a good tool if you haven't used it. It brings a lot of fun into the environment. And it's quite funny because I think I'm going to do one for like Christmas for indie hackers as a whole, mm. just like see who shows up to like a Christmas party. <laughs> but it's quite funny because it's like you, you get matched up randomly. Um, so when people would get matched up with me, they'd get like quite excited. 
um, I would get all awkward and embarrassed about it because you know, I, I'm just rosy at the end of the day, but obviously people get excited to meet me. Of course. So, yeah. I, I think there's some fun things you could potentially do around that. It's like give prizes away for matching up with certain people or something like that. Mm. Are there any other interesting tools or platforms you've been excited about or have been using a lot lately with regard to doing community online? I use Calendly just to organize events, so the accountability sessions, uh, just to get people booked, you know, to register. And, you know, it sends them reminders, which hopefully helps them actually show up. Seems to work all right. I like to use Whereby just as a video tool instead of Zoom. It's kind of got a more funky edge to it, and it's like it's got a simple URL that you can go to, which which I prefer. Hmm. Trying to think, what else? Notion. I love Notion. It's you know it's not a community tool, but it's just like you know a way of um, sharing knowledge and writing stuff down. It's kind of my my life is a bit on Notion at the moment. Yeah, Slack. I, lo- I love Slack as a community tool as well. I think a lot of people, like, they say it's a terrible community tool, but actually I think it's pretty pretty amazing. It does the job. It's kind of baked into, like, the tech world. I think, uh, like, Lenny's newsletter, he's got a great Slack going, and I always point to him as, like, a good example of how to have a great community with Slack. Um, but there's a few out there. And I know, like, other people have tried to, use tools similar to Slack, but they just never get the engagement. So yeah, I'm on, I'm on loads of Slacks. <laughs> Too many. <laughs> yeah, we've seen, I think with our customers at Orbit, Slack and Discourse are the two most common tools that we integrate with and people ask for. Discord is coming up quickly, though, I would say, in terms of adoption, uh, given the granularity around moderation and permissions and things like that. It seems to be a, a big differentiator when compared to, to Slack. So it's interesting to see the, those trends change uh, sort of in the front row seat that we have at Orbit. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. My, my teens are on Discord. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to get into it, but I'm, I'm struggling. But I'm sure in time, you know, as I have no choice, as time goes on, sometimes you have no choice but to get sucked into, into <laughs> these tools. But, it, you know, it seems pretty good. You know, we've covered a lot of ground today, I would say, and uh, it's, it's been wonderful to hear your story and your progression through different stages of your own community building. But I, I'm curious, you know, what keeps you coming back to community as a discipline and a, as a vocation? You know what? I don't know. <laughs> I think in, in my heart, there's like this need for belonging. And I think it's like when I go to other people's events or things that other people organize I struggle to find a place to fit in and the way that I feel most comfortable fitting in is by creating the community myself um, so that's why I quite often just end up starting communities because I can just like design it around around me and and that's like not in a like an egotistical way but it just makes me feel most at ease that I see stuff happening that I love to see happening and I don't have to introduce myself to anyone. <laughs> it just makes life so much easier. It's like people come to you and it's just like, you know, it's pretty amazing to be able to live like that. It's like I've managed to do that on repeat several times in the past 15 years, I guess. Mm. You know, there's ministry to test and I did a co-working space. So I did the same kind of thing as well I've done meetups and then indie hackers and now Rosie land and yeah so it's like it helps me feel like I belong 
because I, it's like, you know, if I look in, to my like local community, not many people understand what I do. So if I was trying to explain what Roseland is, they'd be like, what? I don't get that. Indie hackers, what? <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I create these spaces to help me feel like I belong. And that helps me feel good. <laughs> That's powerful. So Rosie, I have one question that we ask every person that comes on the show. This, this podcast is called Developer Love. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, what's one thing that you're loving right now? Ooh, yeah. So I guess I've been in community or tech for quite a long time. And I think um, being more experienced, being 40 plus, I have experience, right? So I have experience of running a business. I have experience of starting communities that didn't work out and failing. I have experience of employees. And so for me, it's like I'm thinking about all of that experience at the moment and I'm taking it into new things, you know, with a new perspective and thinking about how I can apply what I've learned over the years to work better for me. And that's making me kind of feel really good about what I'm doing. So I'm working for Indie Hackers full time. Uh, I never thought I would work for anyone else. I've been there almost two years now. Um, so I, I love that experience and I appreciate it. And I love not having to ha have employees to manage. <laughs> it's like, you know, you learn to appreciate things only in hindsight. And then like coming with Rosie Land, it's like I appreciate like starting things from scratch and having like, you know, a clean slate to try anything. Mm. And that really kind of excites me at the moment. It's like, I can do anything I want now. And what will I do now that I have a clean slate? What have I learned from all the, these years? Not necessarily about what's wrong or what's right, but say like more about me as a human being. What do I really want out of, out of life? And I have the opportunity now to do stuff. And it's not, it's not about money necessarily. It's not about, it's not about anything. It's just about, me having a smile on my face day to day, enjoying the work that I want to do. So I basically, I love the freedom that I have now and the choice that I have to do those things because I could quit any of those and I would be fine. I guess financially I would be okay. So it's like everything that I'm doing now at the moment is that out of choice, not out of necessity. Mm. Well, Rosie, you've been very generous with your time today. If, if people wanted to learn more about Rosieland and what you're working on and any, anything else, where, where would you send them online to find more? Yeah, I'm Rosie Sherry on Twitter and rosie.land is the Rosieland website. Um, I also have rosiesherry.com um, as kind of like a personal website. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on Developer Love. It's been a real pleasure. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Developer Love. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes and tell a friend. You can learn more about Orbit at orbit.love slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at Orbit Model. 